Hey, everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where founders and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Jeff Solomon, a longtime entrepreneur, founder, venture investor, and educator. Jeff is a six-time founder with three exits, most notably selling his SaaS CRM company Velocify in 2017 for $128 million. He co-founded the accelerator Amplify.LA in Los Angeles with over 100 investments across five funds. He's been teaching high school entrepreneurship for six years and is one of the top advisors on Clarity.FM. Today, we're talking with Jeff about the art of customer development. But before we get into that, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, excited to have you here and to learn a little bit about customer development. Before we get into that, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started as an entrepreneur? Well, like you said, I've had a lot of different experience. I've been on both sides of the table as a founder, as an investor, as an advisor. I, I really didn't know when I, when I graduated college what an entrepreneur was or what I was going to do. I was never the best student. And I, my first job, I, I sometimes tell this story, my first job out of college, my dad had a buddy that was in uh, YPO. My dad was a YPO guy. And he said, go see him. He's got a company. He might have a job for you. And I, I go meet this guy. I didn't know what I want to do. And he says, well, your dad's a smart guy. And uh, I don't know what you're going to do, but you'll figure it out. And he hired me. And this was a manufacturing company. And I actually learned a lot at that job about product development. You know, we, we had to come up with ideas so that, you know, I really liked that part and then figure out how to make them, how to package them, how to market them, how to distribute them, you know, all the steps from idea to actual sales. And I did not fall in love with manufacturing as a means to develop product, but I did fall in love with the product process in general. And at that time, I started to explore software and I discovered that it was a lot faster than manufacturing and it was a lot more fun for me. And so that's when I started building, you know, software and businesses around, uh, you know, around SaaS and, and different kinds of software. And, and it was the same general principle, like you come up with an idea, figure out, you know, are you solving a problem, bring it to market, figure out how to get customers to find it uh, and all that stuff. So I took those learnings from those first couple of years at that manufacturing company and, you know, headed off on, uh, on building, building businesses. And I guess I sort of just became an entrepreneur uh, along the way. And, and, and until, you know, until the last 20 years, you know, entrepreneur was almost a bad word. You know, it was like, oh, you were lazy if you were an entrepreneur. That's sort of how it was in the, the late 90s. And obviously that's not the case today. It's very, you know, it's the new rock star in a lot of cases. Uh, so yeah, it was, a, it was a, a sort of accidentally becoming an entrepreneur, I guess you could say. Can you tell us, you know, you don't have to go into each company, but can you tell us a little bit about the, the companies you started and maybe, you know, what kind of problems they were solving? Yeah, well, I'll start with my first company, didn't solve any problem. And, the, you know, that's where I learned the hard way, you know, about customer development. You know, we built a very cool piece of software that people thought was neat but really wasn't addressing a need, you know, and people just didn't care that much. And so it didn't, it didn't really grow. And we, we raised a little bit of money and, and that, that company crashed and burned. And it was a huge learning experience. I was young, I was, you know, early twenties. And I realized that like, there's, I didn't know the concept of customer development. It really hadn't been formulated at that time quite yet, but I knew that we had to build something that people wanted, which sounds obvious, right? In intuitively obvious, but surprisingly, even today, so many entrepreneurs, you know, either forget or neglect to, 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 you know, think about that. And so that was the first business. And then, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, I started consulting and just building software for hire. And during that time is when I discovered a real problem and a real pain that we were able to, to spin off a company, which ultimately became Velocify, where you know, we essentially looked at all these companies we'd been building custom software for, and we determined that a lot of them had a similar issue, a similar need. And we talked to them and explored that, and we you know, stumbled upon this very acute pain of of managing leads you know these companies especially in the mortgage space that was very hot at that time had a ton of incoming leads you know and they didn't have a great way to manage them and a traditional crm system like salesforce really wasn't optimized for the high velocity uh that these b2c companies were were engaging in in terms of the sales velocity 
Uh, and so that was the first time I really discovered a, a, a pain point. And, you know, we built a product that met that need. And it was, you know, it was a rocket ship for the first couple of years. All right. Well, you clearly have a wealth of experience and you've kind of taken your learnings from your various companies and, and you've started this course on customer development. So, you know, I'm, I'm uh, holding off on taking the course, but hopefully I can learn a little bit on this <laughs> podcast. Um, but I did see it's available on Udemy. I do have an account, so I, I, I might come back to that. But for, for here, for now, we're talking about customer development as a skill today. So as a skill, where does this uh, customer development stack in terms of how important it is for entrepreneurs and why? I, mean, I think it's the, the most important very first thing that you do because everything is built on it. You know, my that first example of that company that failed was purely because I, I didn't do that. I didn't talk to customers. I had no real idea of what their needs were. Um, and it's so easy for entrepreneurs to assume uh, that someone or a large group has a particular problem when you actually go talk to these people and you ask questions in a particular way often you discover that the need is not what you thought, or there's actually a bigger need that you didn't even realize. And so, you know, when I talk to, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and founders, this is the first thing that I get into. And it's, it's often the thing that is largely overlooked or, or done uh, weekly, uh, you know, not well at first. So it's, it's critical. And what's the history behind uh, customer development? Well, it's actually, you know, it's been around for a long time in a lot of different, you know, areas. In my course, I talk about uh, the Toyota production system, you know, which was created in, in 70s and 80s. Uh, and, you know, they really figured out a way to, to optimize a process and develop great cars from it. And a lot of the modern day uh, customer development is sort of based on, on Tachiono's uh, process and it was wasn't until Steve Blank and Eric Ries and the Lean Startup movement that it really started to become formalized. And you know those guys actually wrote down the process and what it entails and taught it at different uh, different college campuses and got people to see that it's not just a thing that you know the Steve Jobs of the world intuitively know. Um, but that most people have to actually do work to to discover these these pains and problems, and that that's how it started to get formalized into a, a real process. Can you talk about some of the the top benefits you might see of of doing customer development well? Yep the the biggest thing is just you don't waste time on stuff people don't want. You know, there's there's like there's no point spending two years building a business, you know, to find out that nobody cares. It's it's heartbreaking. You know, and I've seen it a lot. I've done it, uh, and you know, so that's a huge, huge benefit. You know, really trying to understand if or validate if the solution or the idea that you've come up up with will actually address that problem. So it's one thing to know what the problem is, but then fine tuning your solution to truly meet that need. It's it's a it's going to increase your success rate significantly. You know, companies that do this work have a significantly higher success rate. They find product market fit uh, faster. You know, and it's it's a way to give yourself a much better chance of success. You know, startups, it's a it's a tough business. Like most startups fail. You know, it's just the way it goes, which is part of the fun. You know, it's exciting, but you want to give yourself the best odds you can, and this is one of those those the means to get. Uh, a, a better shot. Can you talk about where customer development fits into like the development life cycle? I imagine it's somewhere towards the beginning. Um, but yeah, can you talk about where it fits in? Yeah, I mean, it's a it is a first thing, you know, you do this before you build or launch it, you know, it's the first thing you do as you're deciding, you know, what you're going to build and what you're going to launch and how you're going to launch it. But it's also something that is is ongoing. You know, uh, a lot of a lot of great companies are doing this every day. You know, they're talking to their customers. They have a product that works. You know, even take McDonald's, for example. Right. They have a product that works. People are going to keep going to McDonald's to buy food, but they're still iterating. They're still innovating and still trying to figure out ways to meet the needs of, of their changing customers and new customer segments, which uh, maybe they weren't serving initially or maybe they've learned to serve because they didn't serve before. So it's something that you just have to always do. And you really want to incorporate it into the culture, the bones of your organization from day one. All right. So good example. And uh, I really want to get into this uh, customer development technique. And, and you have five steps for um, 
for understanding it for uh, the, the, the process overall. So let's get into it. Step one is called developing a problem hypothesis. Can you walk us through this step and maybe give us some examples of developing a problem hypothesis? Yeah, so a problem hypothesis is essentially, you know, who you think the customer is, what you think their problems are, and what benefits they get, you know, from solving these problems. And that's your, it's a hypothesis. It's a, it's a best shot at coming up with that. Uh, and it, the best way to kind of formulate that is to put it in the, the format of a user story, um, which is something in the effect of, uh, as, a, as a user, as a user per, uh, persona, I want to perform this particular action so that I can accomplish this goal. And so as an example, you know, you might say that the user persona is a firefighter uh, and the behavior they might do is wear fireproof clothing. And what they get out of that action is they don't get burned. Right. So let's look at a couple of like real world examples, you know, and these are ones I just kind of wrote out. So they may not be exactly as they would imagine it, but uh, I think they're pretty close. So with Twitter, for example, as a user, I want to be able to share short ideas with my friends so that I can stay connected without spending a ton of time writing, you know, and then maybe another one uh, LinkedIn as a business professional. I want to organize my work experience online so I always have an updated resume to share. So it's a really simple and straightforward statement that that essentially tells you know who you think the customer is, what their problems are, a problem, and what benefit they get when you solve that problem. And that's what a problem hypothesis is. And do you always have to develop a problem hypothesis, or can you go out and discover it, like when you speak to customers? What if you skip this step? It's it's not a it's not. <laughs> You probably will discover that it's wrong when you go out there, but that's the whole point of a hypothesis and the scientific method is, you know, you take a, a crack at it and you see how well it fits, right? And so it's a good exercise to just take a crack and try and write a few things out and then go to market with that in your mind and start talking to people and see how well they fit into that. And what you'll find is that you got one of the pieces right or two of the pieces right or something's a little bit off and so it gives you a baseline to work from versus going there completely blind and having to to, to develop it on the fly okay let's let's move on to step two connecting with customers just talk about what the step is and what are some useful techniques that entrepreneurs might be able to use here yeah so in, in this step you know it's it the the goal is to, to figure out who they are what they do what they're like you know, what they don't like, where they work, where they play. You're just trying to learn everything you can about the customer. And inside of that learning is going to, you're going to discover the, the problems. And one of the, the, the best methods to do this is to get them to tell you stories, right? You really want to stay away from binary responses, yes and no responses. So you want to get them to tell you stories because inside those stories, like the example, uh, the story I gave you, about uh, my first job, my dad introduced me. That, that was a good story. And inside that story are little nuggets that, that you could drill into and be like, oh, that's interesting. Well, why that? Well, why this? And so that's really an, an underlying theme that I like to do is try and get them to, to, to do that. Um, you know, and you can't assume uh, people have the problem. Let them self-indicate that they do or don't. And, you know, generally you're going to have some people in your network or you're going to have some connections that, you know, you can go to initially to, to have these conversations. And that's fine. Uh, you, but you, you probably want to stay away from friends and family members and coworkers because most likely you're going to get biased answers. You're going to get false positives and negatives. You really want to try and go to people you don't know. And, uh, you know, I have I have a little process that I use. There's a lot of ways to find people. Uh, and I talk about a bunch of them in the course. But one of the ways that I like to do it, and I've done it multiple times, is uh, I start with a survey. And the goal of the survey is not to collect survey data. And, you, and I think that's a really important thing to understand that, you know, just creating a survey, and this is super common with founders and even seasoned entrepreneurs, it's like, oh, we got to talk to our customers. Let's create a survey and send it out. Right? And, th and that's not sufficient because a survey is not dynamic for the most part. You can't adjust and iterate and uh, change what you're talking to them about on the fly like you can in a conversation. But I do use a survey to find initial people. So I'll create a survey and I often use Facebook groups to go out and find people to take the survey. And really the goal of the survey is the very last question, which is, hey, would you be willing to have a follow-up conversation with me? 
I find it much easier to start with that than go out people and say, hey, will you talk to me on the phone about this? I get a lot of no's that way. But it's very low difficulty and low risk for someone just to fill out a 10 question survey. A lot of people are nice. They'll do that. And, you know, 20 to 30% of those people will say, yeah, this is interesting. I'll, I'll share on the phone with you for 20 minutes. And that's often how I get my initial group of, of people to talk to that I don't know. That's a really interesting technique. I'm just wondering, do you have any other, uh, you know, examples or any other good examples of, of what to do when it comes to connecting with customers or what not to do? You did mention stay away from family and friends, you know, that might bias the the data, so to speak. Is there any anything else to consider when connecting with customers? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the, the, the scale. You know, if you need to connect to 10,000 people, the strategy I just described is not going to work and you're going to have to do, you know, a larger outreach campaign. But honestly, for most startups, it really doesn't take that many people to start to get a sense of if you're on the right track or not. You know, we're talking certainly less than 100 people, um, but even, you know, 10, whenever I'm talking to uh, uh, advising a founder, um, I often tell them, just get 10, talk to 10 people, start with that, you know, 10 real good conversations. And so there's a lot of ways you could do that. You know, you could you could certainly uh, go into the same Facebook groups and just ask them. You uh, could do some some email campaigns. You could write blog posts. There's there's ways you could get to ten people. You know, but the fa- this method I have is is pretty effective for getting to a hundred people. And then does this work the same for if your consu- if your customer is like a consumer or or an enterprise le- level customer if they're a business how do you approach like connecting with your customers same way same way i mean i uh, i've had both b2c and b2b businesses and i've used this this technique in both cases where I go to plant the survey that the Facebook groups are different. You know, if I'm looking for product managers, like in the case of uh, a current uh, startup I'm, I'm building called Markup Hero, you know, we wanted to talk to product managers and there's a ton of, of places where product managers hang out for information and, and talk to each other. And I went in there and I started to build relationships and asked them to take my survey. Uh, and then, you know, for another, another business, I, I had a mobile app, uh, that serviced super intense geeks like anime and uh, role play and just like super hardcore geeks. This was, it, it's kind of an interesting story how I got into that. I actually probably would consider myself a bit of a geek, uh, but not like these people. And we just sort of stumbled upon this. This was an accidental find. But uh, point of the of the diversion is... You know, when I wanted to find more of those people, I had to go into different spots. There are, you know, anime forums and places where I could find those people. And, and they wanted to talk. They wanted to share about what they do. And they were passionate about it, you know. And it was fairly easy to talk to a lot of them. Yeah, there's just so many ways to connect with people nowadays. Let's go to step three. Uh, how do you prepare for these interviews? Uh, can you just give us a, a brief overview of this step? Yeah. So, you know, I like to start with what I call an interview framework, which is very different than a script. I really encourage people not to write a script. It's really hard to stick to a script because the conversations, as I said before, are dynamic. You know, somebody will say something and then that will take you off script and then you're in trouble. So it's more of an outline of things that I want to cover and an outline of things that I can reference back to as the conversation goes on. So I start, I start with that. Um, and you know, the, a few things that, that I, you know, I'm very passionate about is, you know, never telling them the problem, never telling them the solution, right? As soon as I tell them the problem, I think I'm going to solve or the solution I have, which is the natural inclination of all founders. Like, let me tell you what we're doing. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about it. It's so cool. You know, but it's dangerous because now you've planted the solution in their head. So, uh, you know, they could say, oh, that's amazing. I love it and not really love it. Or they could say that's terrible and not, you know, really understand, you know, if it's if it's really a, a solution for them. So you can get a lot of false and negative positives. So I really try to stay away from, you know, telling them problem and solution. And it's a lot of listening. You let them tell you stories, ask very open ended, you know, questions uh, versus very, like I was saying before, binary questions. No, yes, no questions are no good. In fact, in my class, my high school entrepreneurship class, which starts my sixth year, starts next week. 
uh, we have this really cool exercise where I give one student a, uh, a, a note that says, you need to find out what this person had for breakfast, right? And they cannot ask them what they had for breakfast. They have to ask them other questions that would get that person to tell them what they had for breakfast. So it's a really fun exercise and they have a blast doing it. And it's really hard. It's really, really hard to do it. And, you know, we do that for a couple of days and, and all different random topics. And it puts them in that mindset of, you know, how to have a conversation with some with someone to get them to tell you something that you, you know, don't want to tell them what you're asking for. It's, it's tricky. Um, and that that's a great little exercise that, that you can you can practice with. Um, so those are some some of the, you know, the processes and really the open ended questions are 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 key. Like I'll give you a couple examples, you know. You might, someone might ask like a typical question be like, how often do you walk your dog two to three times per week? Well, that's not a great question because you're kind of planting the two to three times per week versus a question like, uh, tell me the last time, tell me about the last time you walked your dog. So now you're, you're asking them to give you a story about it. And within that story, you might ascertain that they walk their dogs two to three times per week. And that's a much more high quality answer and much more accurate data around that than just planting it for them. Yeah. Could I ask what you've eaten today if, in that game, if we were in, our, in your class? No, you couldn't. No, you'd have to, you'd have to say like, you know, tell me about your morning. You know, that's what they would start with. And they'd be like, Oh, I woke up. Be like, you know, uh, what did you do first? You know, you know, did you, are you, are you full right now? Like all kinds of random questions they come up with and some are good and some are not. And you know, half the time they get to the, the right answer or they get them to tell them and half the time they don't. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. And the rest of the students don't know what the person is getting at either. So they're trying to discover, what it is the one student is trying to extract from the other student. It's pretty fun. I should take a video of it this year and post it on my, on YouTube just so people can see. It's pretty funny. Yeah. It does sound like a fun exercise. I was just kind of curious about like the rules around, like, I know you can't ask like what's for breakfast, but you know, can you ask a similar question? It sounds like you can't. Um, yeah, you can. I mean, I try to push them away. If I start hearing them going down a path where they're, they're getting too specific, I'll say like, I'll, I'll buzz them, you know, no, go, <laughs> go a different direction. Gotcha. Okay. Well, well point being, um, open-ended questions, a uh, great way to have uh, interesting conversations and um, closed-ended questions, good way to uh, end up at a closed, uh, short answer. Yep. So let's talk about the ideal or optimal format for these customer interviews. How much detail goes into your framework and how long should they be or any other details I'm, I'm sort of not seeing here? I think when you're do, doing this for the first time or you're early at this process, then you want to create a more detailed framework. You want to really cover a lot of things that might come up and have a lot of pointers and, and a lot of bullet points to touch on because a lot of times what happens, you'll get into a conversation and then it'll just kind of die and you won't know. This is very common. I watch with my students. They, they go in, they have a few questions and then it just sort of dies and the person on the other end feels awkward and then it just kind of ends. And so for, for newbies, I would say come with a pretty detailed document that you can have in front of you that just gives you some, some directions to go and a lot of these open-ended questions to ask. Uh, as you get more experienced, I think that that can get smaller. One, you'll remember a lot of the same tactics and techniques, uh, but two, you'll just get better at uh, having conversations. I think, like you said, at the top of this podcast, you know, you want to have a, a style where it's very conversational. We're just, you know, we're having a dialogue. We're talking about whatever comes up and it's kind of relaxing and fun. And that's the goal. That's exactly what you want in these kinds of conversations. You really don't want it to be like an, a yes, no interview, like a job interview. Um, and so as you get more skilled at it, it'll come more naturally. You know, you'll, you'll see, you'll hear something. In fact, another thing that I do with my students is as they're practicing this work and I'm listening, I'll, uh, I'll jot down spots where I heard the person being interviewed, say something that kind of piqued my interest where I was like, Hmm, that's kind of that's kind of interesting. That's kind of weird. Like, why did they say that? And then invariably my student will just skip over it and move on to his next question. 
And at the end, I'll ask the students that they hear anything and occasionally hear and I'll point out, be like, remember when they said this, you know, that was a weird, like interesting little nugget. Like, let's dig into that. So I would really encourage them to, to unpack that, you know, oh, well, what did you mean when you said this? Well, tell me more about that. That's really fascinating. I've never heard that before. And let the person go, go deeper on that. Those are the things you want to be looking out for. Um, yeah. And so to answer, to further answer your question, I think that the short, the short version of your, you know, framework is okay as you get more comfortable and you really want to do these over, over the phone, you know, you can do a video or in person, but I found that generally people are most comfortable on the phone because they're not like staring at you yet. You still have that ability to, you know, shift and move and duck and weave to adjust the conversation accordingly. So that that's my general preferred format. Sometimes I do it on a Zoom uh, or in person, but but mostly on the phone, and it's just easier to scale. Is there like a duration that's ideal? Are you aiming for thirty minutes? Is that too long? What are your thoughts there? I generally tell people fifteen minutes because I want them to you know know that it's a quick thing. But if if I'm doing my job right, it'll almost always be at least thirty minutes, uh, and so somewhere between thirty minutes. I would not spend more than an hour if someone's like really excited and just has all this stuff to say. By the time you've hit an hour, you're more than likely you're not getting, you're getting more fluff, more, more chaff than wheat. So it's probably best to pause and then return to that person. And, you know, you can always say like, Hey, this is amazing. I want to go take it back to my team and get some feedback. Would you be open to another conversation? And I'm certain, certainly they will be. Uh, so it's, it's usually 30, 40 minutes is kind of my general guide for for time okay at Um, least for the first time yeah right last question about the 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 interview framework you know i'm I'm actually kind of curious about that uh, as someone who conducts interviews myself what does that look like for you you said it's it's not a script it's a framework i guess what's the difference there and is it just full of uh, open-ended questions or, or what does it really look like I mean, it looks like an outline. So it's, you know, a lot of bullet points, numbers, and indentations. I, I build most of my documents in Notion, but you could do it, whatever. I oh, love that. that. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Great product. And, you know, I start with sections. So I'll have like, here are some open-ended questions. So I'll have a list of 10 open-ended questions that I know I'm going to be able to go back to. So I have that at the top where I can always feel back. And then I have bullet points of, uh, you know, the things that I want to make sure that are important to, to cover sort of topics that are, that I want to get into uh, things like that. And then some of the pointers, like, like I've gone through in, in the course, you know, don't forget open-ended questions, focus on stories, you know, don't be afraid of bad news, have them be super honest, listen for behaviors, those kinds of things. Uh, just to kind of remind me most of the time I've done this for a while. I kind of just know, to do those things, but it's always good to like, just look back down like, oh yeah, 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 I forgot. Let me, let me get another story, you know? So I have some of that in there, uh, but it doesn't, you know, for me, it's like a page at most. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for breaking that down. Okay. Last piece here on step three. Can you talk about defining a significant problem context? Yeah. So there's, you have the problem hypothesis, which you talked about earlier and the problem context, and they're not the same thing. They're, they're distinctly different. So just to recap, the, the problem hypothesis is your attempt to state who the customer is, what their problems are, and what benefits they get. That's that user story. Whereas a problem context is the situation that a customer is likely to find themselves in when they experience the problem. So I, uh, I have this user story in, in the course that I keep going back to that's fake, but uh, it's essentially that athletes want to wear, you know, quick dry clothing because they don't like it when they are sticky and uncomfortable when they sweat, right? That's kind of my, my hypothesis, right? And for that particular product. And so a problem context for that would be what would situation would an athlete be in that would cause that problem to occur, you know? And so I, I have an example of this backpacker. So I'll give a story about, I was backpacking, I was deep in the terrain, the sun was overhead, it's really hot, I'm, I have water, but it's not cold, my pack is heavier, you know? It's a, like a story about that and it's kind of a uncomfortable situation. And I share that if I'm talking to, you know, hikers or backpackers and, you know, I'll ask, have you, you know, when was the last time you had that situation? What was it like? 
and let them kind of imagine themselves in that context, in that story, and share back with me uh, what happens when they're in that. And if I get lucky and they say, you know what, it sucks when at that time because I get all sticky and my clothes get sticky. I hate that. I'm like, bam, okay, cool. So that is a problem, right? That does happen to you, right? And then I would dig into that. So it just creates a, a, a space for the person to share um, their problems. And, and they may even share a solution, right? They may have already solved it uh, as well, which is great to listen out for it because sometimes uh, the customer will have a solution that isn't mass marketed yet. You can just build that, you know? Right. And you mentioned earlier, you don't want to, uh, you know, bring the problem or the solution to the interview. So is this problem context kind of a way, problem context kind of a way for the person you're interviewing to arrive at, at those? It's exactly what it is. Yeah, That's exactly what it is. It's a situation where if they're going to have that problem, this is a likely scenario that would cause it. And if you pick a good problem context and they don't indicate the problem that you think, well, that's a good, good indicator that that's not a real problem. If you told that to a hundred people that backpack and not one of them said, Hey, you know what? My clothes get sticky. That's, that's telling that tells you that like, that isn't a real issue for people. You know, that isn't probably a real issue for people. And that's, that's the benefit of using that, that structure. Um, and you could make a problem context for any business. Let me take Udemy, for example, you know, you're, you're teaching yoga and you only have one client, right? You, you create a whole story around that or, you know, zoom, you, you know, have a meeting, but you're not in the office. Right. And like, Oh, well, I would need a tool that I could do meetings for online, you know, or whatever product you could come up with a problem context for. Right. Is there a good indicator for like having a good or a bad problem context or, or, or are there do's and don'ts when, when creating one? I mean, there are definitely better, some are better than others, but really it's a matter of just taking a stab at something. It's kind of like the problem hypothesis. You just start with something. And after you have your first conversation, you might find that the story about mile seven backpacking just doesn't resonate with people. They're like, uh, what? I don't really do that. That's not my thing, you know? So if that turns out to be the case, then modify your problem context for the next conversation. So it's a total iterative process and it really doesn't matter. You just start somewhere, especially when you're new and as you get more experienced. Uh, and especially if you're, if you're working on a business that you are either the client, a client, which is a great way to start a company when you're the actual client, uh, or you really understand the space, it's going to be a lot easier to come up with a problem context. If you're, you know, if I'm building, for example, fireproof clothing, and I have no idea about that industry, I'm not going to really be able to come up with a great problem context. So you can do it. And certainly people have solved problems that they have no understanding of initially. That does happen. But a lot of great startups have, have been the opposite. I mean, take Dropbox is a great example. You know, Jordan Houston was like, I, I'm on the train and I can't get my docs. This is a freaking nightmare. I need a way to get my docs. And so he built the product for himself and turned out a lot of people had that problem. All right. I feel like we've uh, explained that one sufficiently. Let's move on to step four. Conducting interviews. How should you approach it? Well, I think, you know, again, the story piece is a, is a really big part of the interview and you want them to tell you stories. And it starts with that problem context. But, but even beyond that, telling stories of your own, uh, the more they relate to the situation, the better. But really, even any story is a, is a great way to break the ice. You know, when I tell, told you the story about, you know, how I graduated college and I went to see my dad and, you know, it was kind of funny. It was kind of, it was kind of like, oh, that's a random way to get started in the world. You know, <laughs> um, it, it, it sort of lowers bar the barriers and makes people a little more comfortable and lets them open up and lets them know that, you know, you'd like to hear some of their stories. So I always try to start with some kind of story, you know, to get people comfortable with storytelling. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's kind of the first big thing. The other thing is there's there's a couple of buckets that tend to that information tends to fall in, uh, and so I'm always looking out for that when I'm conducting my interviews. In fact, when I'm you know when I'm done uh, with the interviews and I'm collecting the data, I use this I use a template that I've created 
to collect uh, the emotions that I heard, the behaviors that I heard, the problems, the solutions, and the surprises. And I really just make a list of things. And it's really easy to jot down and take notes. Every time I see or hear, if I'm on the phone, the person getting somewhat emotional, you know, having a, a tone of emotion in their voice, I, I jot that down. Like, that's interesting. Like, what, what emotion were they having? They were excited. They were frustrated. They were sad. They were confused. Uh, I jot that down because it's inside those emotions that I'm likely to find, you know, problems and solutions. Uh, and then I jot down the behaviors, like what are they actually doing? You know, oh, I'm on my seven mile hike and I stopped to tie my shoes. Okay, cool. So their shoelaces came untied during the, during the hike. Well, why did that happen? Right. Is that a problem? Uh, and so I'll write down those behaviors. Obviously, if they state a specific problem or a state a specific solution, I'll write those down. And then I like to write down, you know, the surprises. Like, what are those little, hmm, that's weird. That's interesting. Like I was telling you about with my students, right. those little nuggets of just like that could have tweak your brain. Those things I love to write down because, you know, I want to I want to dig into those more. There's something there that to uncover. Uh, you know, and at the end, I really try to answer, you know, have I, uh, do I have the right target customer? Do I understand the problem clearly? Is the problem meaningful and impactful? And again, that's something we didn't really talk about, but there are, there are levels of problems, right? We all have problems every day. Some are more meaningful and impactful than others. And, you know, for a business to work, it has to solve something that is significant. Otherwise people are generally not going to be willing to pay to solve it. It may be it may be a problem, but if it's not a big enough problem, they're probably not going to care enough to pay you for it to solve it. Um, and then ultimately, does does the solution I have in mind actually solve that problem? So I go in with that, you know, those kind of things as I'm starting to do the actual interviews. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, quick follow up: like, is there a way to know that you that your problem is big enough, so to speak? I mean. <laughs> there's no foolproof, you know, there's nothing that could happen that would be like, this is a guaranteed huge problem and your solution is guaranteed to solve it, right? That's just, you, that, that doesn't exist. I think it's, it's in the volume of conversations that you have, right? If you have three conversations and three people indicate that something is a huge problem one way or another, that's not as significant as a hundred people saying the same thing. You know, so it, there is some requirement to have enough conversations and, and you'll fine tune it, right? If you have 15 conversations and you start hearing a lot of the same thing, then tailor the next 15 conversations around that particular thing to really hone in and see if that's it. So you don't waste a, a full conversation talking about stuff that isn't related to what you're, you're thinking might actually be the big problem. Uh, so that, that's certainly a, a factor and then just getting, you know, really good. And I think if you look at some of the, the greatest entrepreneurs, the, the Steve jobs of the world, who in, to some extent you would say, oh, the guy just intuitively knew what people needed. Right. And maybe to some extent he did, but I actually think that he was just really good at ascertaining what people needed by watching them and listening to them. To the extent that he did this process as deliberately as I'm sort of defining it here, I'm not sure, but he was definitely hearing and observing what was going on in the world. And he was really good at saying, you know what, that's not a big problem. That is a big problem. You know, even when people couldn't articulate it as a big problem, that was his sort of genius. And so as you get more skilled at this, you'll be able to tell, you know, and more practice, uh, which ones are the more significant issues. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought. Kind of going back to the question of volume, how many interviews should you be conducting? You know, uh, I imagine the people, if you're starting a company and you are a founder, you know, you, you only, time is limited. So, uh, so yeah, with that in mind, how many, how many of these interviews should you be doing? Maybe a week, maybe, uh, you know, before you launch your product? I mean, the more you do, the better, you know, I, I, this is a great story. Uh, the, the company Twilio, which you're probably familiar with, um, were hugely successful. Jeff Lawson is the founder. And I remember meeting with Jeff years ago, uh, Velocify was a huge client of, of Twilio's in early days when Twilio just launched, we were, we were at one point actually for a good year and a half, the largest client of Twilio. 
And I remember meeting with him right as he was founding the company. And he was telling me he spent a year prior to, to deciding to launch Twilio talking to people and evaluating things and really trying to decide what problem he wanted to solve, you know, and he eventually came to, to the idea of Twilio, but he, he literally spent a year and I didn't know that much about customer development at that time. And I was like, what you, you sat in your room in your house for a year and with one other guy to like figure out what to do. I couldn't even fathom it. Um, so, you know, that's a good example of, of spending all the time you need to get the right answer and it working out really, really well. Uh, but for new, for new founders that, you know, are probably doing zero interviews, I, I tell them just do 15, like start with 15, like see what you get from 15 conversations, good conversations, not like five minutes, like, Hey, I'm building this thing. What do you think? Like, that's not, that doesn't count. Right. But if you have 15 and, you know, you start to hear some insights and some stuff, then hopefully you'll be a little motivated to do another 15. I think somewhere somewhere between 25 and 100 is kind of where I would start to feel comfortable to actually build a product. And what's the, what's the ultimate list of questions you should be asking? You've mentioned, you know, um, you want to ask open-ended questions, not closed questions, and you want to get people to tell stories. And, you know, I, I imagine you're in that interview trying to validate or, uh, you know, devalidate your problem hypothesis. What kind of questions should you be asking to do that? Well, the ultimate list of questions is not my term. Uh, that's that's Mike Fishburne's. Um, and if you if you can pop his link somewhere, I'd, it'd be I'd be grateful because I I love this list. He's got a customer development article where he lists out from years of practicing this stuff all these questions, you know, and he breaks it down by different category, customer segmentation, problem discovery, problem validation, problem uh, product discovery, all these different things. And he has a ton of these questions that he's used. And I, I still go back to this document every time I'm going to embark on this exercise because it's just one of the best uh, out there. And there's no, no reason to reinvent the wheel when he's got a good one. Um, and, it, and it's a lot of the stuff I'm talking about. You know, it's if you're looking to validate whether the problem is a real problem, you know, he's got specific questions for that. You know, how important is it to you to do these things? Tell me about the last time that you did these things. How motivated are you to work on this thing? Those kinds of questions. So it's a great resource uh, that I that I that I recommend to sort of all my my students and and, and companies that I work with. Yeah, we will try to get a, a link in the show description. Let's move on. Uh, step five and the last step, validate, iterate, or pivot. Tell us about this step. What kind of actions are you taking after you've done uh, the customer interviews? So uh, as I said earlier, you know, I like to bucket all the feedback and insights that I got into those, those categories, the emotions, behaviors, problems, solutions, surprises, uh, and I try to do that as quickly as possible because a lot of times I forget. So right after the interview, I try to write it down in, in this, you know, Google doc that I have. Uh, and then after I've done a handful, maybe two or three, I'll look at those and look for patterns, you know, see what is, what some people are saying that's different things that people are saying that are similar, uh, areas that I was surprised about. And I take that information and I revise my uh, interview framework. I start by revising my problem hypothesis. I start, I revise my problem context. I choose more distinct questions that keep me in the vein that I'm, that I'm trying to, to discover. So I'm constantly iterating my process as I go after every few uh, you know, interviews. Um, and, and the same goes for after launch. So if you're continuing to use this process as you should, after you've launched your MVP or your first version of your product, whatever it is, uh, and you start talking to your, your customers that you've acquired, which is great. Cause once you launch a company, you're going to start having some customers and you can talk to them and pretty much anything always has at least one or two, like super excited people. Like there's always somebody for everything. You can't necessarily build a business with two ecstatic customers, but you, you should be able to get a couple customers that are just super excited to talk to you. And, um, you know, so talk, talk to them. And now you're iterating two pieces. You're iterating the, 
the process of interviewing and what you're asking and what you're trying to discover, but you're also iterating the product itself, you know, which is uh, one of the reasons why, you know, it's dangerous to launch a super, super, super deep baked product with tons of features because you're probably going to get it wrong first. So you want to leave yourself room to be like, okay, I could adjust this or change that or add this or remove that and not having spent a year or longer building out this very first version. That's why they call it an MVP because uh, you're trying to really prove out that, you know, all this research that you did and all these interviews you did to determine a problem and build a solution for, you're trying to, to prove that it's actually working as fast as possible. So I, I pass that information back into the product development process as well. And do it all again. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thanks for breaking that down. We've kind of concluded the customer discovery portion. And now I'd just like to ask a few kind of bigger picture, uh, you know, entrepreneurship types of questions. So first one, uh, what did you find to be the most challenging throughout your entrepreneurial journey? Uh, you know, I, I, as a kind of person that just likes to do stuff and build stuff and is sort of very on his game and able to do a lot. I'm one of those entrepreneurs that can do a lot well, but nothing, I'm not an expert at any one thing. Uh, I found myself saying yes to a lot of stuff, uh, whether it's yes to my own ideas, yes to uh, people that are, you know, work for me or that I work for. Um, and it's impossible to do everything. Uh, there's a great book uh, called Essentialism by uh, Greg McCowan. Uh, I don't know if you've read it. Good one. And it really breaks down the importance of focusing on the most essential things and everything else is secondary or not at all. Uh, and, you know, he has a great line in there where, you know, you, you want to live by the mantra, I can do anything, but I can't do everything. And I don't think I lived by that mantra uh, for most of my career. It was more like I can do everything and I will do everything, you know? Um, and that's just not realistic and it, it's tiring for one, but it's also, uh, it also leads to inferior results because, you know, you try to do 10 things well, and it's, it's hard enough to do one thing well. And incidentally, as it relates to customer development and finding those problems in my experience, especially with software, software in particular, but I suspect this is the case with everything. It's often one or two features, one or two things that are the reason people stick. You know, you may have a hundred cool features, but in the end, it's just one or two things that they can't live without that are, make them willing to pay for your product. And, it's more important to find out what those one or two things are and, you know, not focus on those 98 other things because they're just not going to have the impact. They're just not the essential, most important things. And so I think that's, you know, to answer your question, long winded is, you know, I wish I probably said no to stuff more than I did. Well, that was well said. I, I've, I've taken the note essentialism by Greg McCown. Um, and yeah, thank you for, for putting that so, so beautifully. Last question here. If you could give your 20 year old self a piece of advice or say, give advice to a 20 something year old podcaster, uh, what would you say? Hmm. Well, one of the distinct things that I learned in my career, I, I don't know if this is probably the saying no is probably the biggest piece of advice. But one thing I really learned and I would encourage founders to try and learn about themselves uh, as early as possible was what I liked and what I was really good at. And, and one of those things, probably my one of my best things is I like and I'm really good at working on super small early stage startups, whether they're mine or someone else's, meaning less than 20 people and even, you know, sub five people. Uh, and, you know, I was building Velocify, we got to 100 employees and I found myself not only not enjoying things, but also being an impediment. You know, I was kind of disruptive 
Because what happens in a company as it grows is you need less generalists. When you're, when you're early on in the early days and it's three founders, like you got to be able to do a lot of stuff. You know, I can do marketing, I can do content writing, I can do customer development, I can do product work, I can do UI, like I can do all that stuff. So that's critical when you have three people because it's just you need to get a lot done. But as you scale and you start hiring these people that are experts at particular things, so you start hiring a QA expert and a marketing expert and a, uh, you know, whatever role, a finance expert, those people are focused on doing one particular area of work. And you have guys like me that are generalists that, that A, like to do all these different things and B, kind of need to. Like, I, I realized I don't want to do just one thing. And so I'm getting in the way. I'm like, well, let me work on that. Well, let me work on this. Well, let me jump over here. And then they're like, wait a minute, you just hired me to do this thing. Like, get out of my way. And so I, I realized that, like, that's not for me. I'm not doing the company a service. I'm doing it a disservice and I'm unhappy. And so what happened at Philosophy is, you know, when we had 100 people and I had pretty much done every role in the company from CEO to janitor to enterprise sales, marketing, everything. I, after seven years, I was like, you know what? I'm going to step down and walk away and let, you know, some other guys take this through the finish line. And it was the best decision I ever made because I ended up starting founding Amplify. So I got to do another early stage thing, which was fun. And I wasn't getting any more stock. It's not like I was going to get any more founder stock than I had. So there was no real upside other than a nice, you know, juicy salary. And the company was more effective without me because they were able to let the, the specialists focus on what they did best. And guys like me were out of the way. And I just kind of sat back and someone else did the hard work and did a great job. Nick Hedges is the gentleman's name that ran, ran the company through to the, the finish. And I just got a big check, you know, <laughs> it was great. And I got to put all that energy toward another startup, which, you know, has produced incredible results as well. So, you know, don't get stuck on the company being your baby that you have to see it through. Like if it's not for you, there's no reason you can't move on and do something else and still maintain upside. And I, I did that. All right. Uh, well, Jeff, thanks. Plug your plug your course. Where can people find it? So the course is on on Udemy. I, I will give you a, a coupon code for your listeners. You can pop into the, the the listing. It's called Customer Development: Finding Product Market Fit. If you just search for Customer Development, you'll find it. It's the first result for that. And uh, it's about two hours. It's a great course. And I, I give a lot of ways people can contact me. And like I said, I do a lot of calls on Clarity. I do a lot of advisory stuff. Uh, I, have a, I have a Slack channel that I give access to anyone that takes the course. And I'm, I do respond in there. So I'm very readily available if people want to connect with me. Awesome stuff. All right. We will end the show there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a rating. Uh, Jeff, thank you for joining the show today. I appreciate your time. And I'll definitely be going back to uh, gather some tips on uh, conducting interviews. So thank you very much. Awesome. It was great. Thanks so much for having me. 